Hello there and welcome to the Whole Healed Holy Podcast, a place for conversations of the heart, for exploring healing, divinity, and all things sacred. I'm your host, Patricia Russo. I'm a mystic, muse, and spiritual teacher, guiding women into their hearts with a journey of softening. I'm a published poet, a lover of hearts, and a forever student. Welcome, love, to a sacred pause and hopefully a few tingles, and to a reminder that we are all whole, healed, and holy. I'm so happy you are here. Let's slip into today's episode. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long, long time. And when I began this podcast project, my guest today was one of the very first that came to mind and heart because we share a deep, deep belief in something so holy and so sacred that has changed our lives for the better. And I wanted to share this through her, through this heart-to-heart conversation. And I'm so happy this day has finally come and that we are here together to share what I know will be a powerful conversation for all who listen. Sharon Kagan's multimedia work focuses on listening, unraveling, and pulling apart the complexities of intergenerational trauma and forgiveness. She brings her experiences as the daughter of Holocaust survivors to her work. Kagan has developed a complex practice that is built upon the symbolic act of knitting. Layering intimate stories onto the act of knitting transforms this traditional woman's craft into a distinct language, a metaphor. Her work speaks to the patterns that are created when a life is broken, a stitch is dropped. But breaking can also be an act of breaking free. Kagan sees resilience, beauty, and integrity amidst her parents' broken lives. Kagan's practice comes from intersectional feminism and privileges the act of listening. By using stories that have been contributed anonymously and direct engagement with her audiences, she becomes the listener. At her Alfred University exhibit, students sat beside her knitting, sharing stories, or in silence. Kagan received the Word Artist Grant in 2021. Recent solo exhibitions include Compassion in Action at Alfred University in New York in uh, 2022. The Politics of Color, Show Gallery in Hollywood, California, and String Theory, College of Southern Idaho in Twin Falls, Idaho, um, in 2020 and 2021, and Yellowstone Art Museum in Billings, Montana in 2019. I always like to start these podcasts, Sharon, with the bio that people can find, and then I like to move into my gift of how I see sisters and loves beloved sisters in the world. For me, you are the thread that is weaving all of us together. The brave, strong, heart-led thread of love. What pure love looks and feels like when we strip away all of the denser things, all of the human things. You embody forgiveness with a courage that inspires me and so many. I see in you where this forgiveness is born in the depths of you, in your heart, in your spirit. It is holy. And through your work, you've made this holiness in you an invitation for all of us to find it in us. 
and in the world around us. I feel deeply honored to be part of this thread of you, this weaving and unraveling, and I love that we share a love for forgiveness. I feel so honored that you are here with me today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that exquisite introduction. I always feel so gotten by you and so seen by you. And those are words that I never even would have thought of and yet feel like, that's me. That is totally me. Oh, I love that. I love that. I was just talking one of my circles that I lead, that I have the great honor of leading about this idea of the natural art. I feel like it's this universal, natural human need to be seen, like to really be seen. I feel like it's every human wants to be seen in some capacity. And if we are blessed with this gift of seeing, like you're blessed with this gift of listening and so many other things, Sharon, like really, but I, I, we're going to touch on this idea of listening and how this is factored into your work and into your life and what a gift it is. But if you're blessed with this gift of seeing, which I feel is one of my gifts, that I don't want to be careful with it. Because I know how it feels when people really see me and really get me. And I know that because I have this gift, I really can see you. And yeah, so I'm reckless with it. (laughs) I'm reckless with it. And I love starting the podcast with this because it really anchors us. It kind of brings us straight from the mind into the heart quickly. And that's my intention. Yeah. I want to start with something that seems so basic, but is really very, very, very deep. And many philosophers have written and spoken about forgiveness. But what is forgiveness for you? Is it a spiritual practice? What is your relationship with forgiveness in your life? I'd love to just start here before we kind of go into some other things. And kind of as a jumping off point, is forgiveness the same as meta for you? Or is meta the practice that you come to to forgive? Because I want to also, also, yeah, I want to weave in meta too. Because spend the whole hour in this one question. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So for me, forgiveness started as an inquiry because I am the daughter of Holocaust survivors. So from a very young age, I started asking questions about: Are there things that are unforgivable, or is everything forgivable? I went to rabbis, I went to multiple rabbis, mind you, and asked these questions. And they all said the same thing to me, which was, don't worry your little head about such deep questions. Mm -hmm. Just go and have a beautiful life. Mm -hmm. And that never was enough of an answer to me. I was never satisfied with that. I went to transpersonal psychologists. I was told you'll go into a dark place and you'll never come out. I mean, I was veered away from this question and I was unrelenting about asking the question. Mm -hmm. So at first it was a way to understand my family's history. I often asked the question, who would I be if I weren't the child of Holocaust survivors? So there was all of that in my childhood, my young adult life. And then I would say that it became more of a spiritual inquiry. I did a performance piece in 29 Palms in Joshua Tree here in Southern California, and it was about being the child of Holocaust survivors. 
my parents' best friends drove all the way to see me do this piece. And my father's best friend came running up to me. I was sobbing. He was sobbing. I said, I'm so sorry, because I raised the question, can you forgive the Nazis? Mm -hmm. And he was like, can you forgive me for not being able to forgive them? And I'm in my 20s at this point when I did that piece. And then I kind of went into a more abstract connection to how we're all interrelated. And I did a lot of work. As you know, my paintings, I did these enormous paintings of knitting that were so abstract, and yet you could still kind of see the forms. And the funniest thing happened in 2020. I had a show that I'd worked on for two years. My show opened on the second wave of the shutdown. Wow. So basically no one could come and see the work or wanted to come and see the work because no one was leaving their, their house. Right. And I thought my gosh, I have spent two years making this work, which I visualized as these images that if they were placed somewhere in the world would slowly connect us all. These images would build a weaving around the world that would connect us. And then I just got so frustrated by the fact that no one really saw them. And I was introduced to this woman who's a curator She sent me an email like a week later saying, maybe you know somebody who would be interested in this. It's a grant application and the subject has to be forgiveness. Oh, wow. It was like in that moment, like an anvil fell on my head. Like, oh my God, of all people in the world, that's my work. Right. And that's when the videos and the performances turned to the subject. Wow. Okay. And so I really can now say that my work and my spiritual life are interwoven and are not separated at all. Okay. Now, as for the meta practice, Mm. we were in the midst of, in the early, you know, when our former president was elected, there were people in my life who were, had voted for that president. Mm. And I started doing the meta practice because I just couldn't bear it. It was just, how is that possible? And it really did wonders. I mean, the relationships were transformed. Mm -hmm. And so then it became clear to me that that needed to be part of the first video. Okay. Again, part of my art and part of my spiritual practice, but I think of it as a tool. Right. Okay. Okay, I want to just say for a moment, if the listeners, if anybody listening doesn't know, isn't familiar with what the meta practice is, it's M-E-T-T-A, and that's Sanskrit for loving kindness. And it's a four-part practice where you offer loving kindness to someone that you know and love, someone that you don't know, um, someone that's given you a heartache or (laughs) grief or has caused pain and suffering in your life, and then to yourself. This is a beautiful practice that has changed my life. And I know that it's been powerful for a lot of people. And I love that this weaving of forgiveness and meta, and I love the way that the forgiveness theme came to you, like, wow, I mean, there are no coincidences, Sharon. So that was really kind of handed to you from above, just so beautifully and so serendipitously. 
Okay, so now we're talking about the power of forgiveness. And I guess I'm wanting to go back just a little bit. And I'm really curious about how one makes their way to forgiveness, to an option of forgiveness with something as big as the Holocaust. And I love that that my second question actually on this list before we even pushed this record button was, is there anything unforgivable? So we'll get to that. And I love that you've already said that this was a curiosity of yours in this practice or in this idea of forgiveness. But I'm trying to, and this is something that I personally ponder a lot because I have a tendency to go very quickly to the option of forgiveness. And I have been that creature. I've been that child with my father. I've been that person, that spirit, whatever, for a very long time. I haven't really understood how it is for some people so hard to forgive because for me, it has been such an easy place to go. I'm wondering if you feel that way too, if you feel like it's just an innate thing or something that you came into this life with, but something takes us to that option. And I'm trying to figure out what it is because when you're the daughter of Holocaust survivors and when we're talking about the Nazis and big things that are in some ways unforgivable, if there's such a thing, what is it in us? What is it in you that became naturally curious about this option of forgiveness at a young age? Maybe some normal response would be, I'm not even going to consider forgiveness because this is atrocious and there's no possibility of it. There's something in us that makes this option of forgiving possible. And where do you think that comes from? Personally, I think I was born with a big open heart. But I was taught that there were certain things that were unforgivable, that in fact would be a betrayal Mm -hmm. of my family and all they went through and all the family members they lost. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the struggle really came in because I have so much respect and love for my parents and what they went through that I can understand that for them. And I think of it this way I think of it as each generation has its own job, and their job was to survive. Right. To ask them to forgive, that's their business. Mm-hmm. For most people, it's not possible. And I totally respect and understand that. Mm -hmm. I'm the next generation. Most of the people I know growing up who are my parents' friends don't go where I go. Right. But I feel that my job is to begin to ask those questions because there have been scientific studies, psychological studies, scientific studies that show that any trauma, and that could be as big as the Holocaust or as small as someone screaming at you, mm-hmm. is passed on for seven generations. Wow. I chose not to have children, mostly because I didn't want to pass the trauma I experienced onto another generation. Mm, I'm the and same. So, yeah, I didn't know that we had that in common, too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I have said this for a really long time and I've gotten this kind of, it's a funny, but it's not, it's really true. My yoga teacher, Rusty, when he taught us the meta practice, he said, if you do it for no one else, but yourself, that's a good enough reason, you know, offer this loving kindness to this person who's broken you into a million pieces for yourself first. And for me, that's what I've come back to. It's oftentimes the forgiveness that I offer 
with the big things like the father and the child abuse, those big things that even, and you're right, I'm in the same camp. My family doesn't understand. They're not there. Each of us have our own choices. There's no judgment, but they don't understand how I've been able to do this with my father. But yeah, for me, the way that I explain it is it's for me first. I want to have the peace that forgiveness has given to me in the practice of forgiving him, this feeling of peace and this feeling of freedom from the story that forgiveness has given to me when I forgive. And so I do it for myself and it is a selfish practice. (laughs) And then the benefits of the healing that happens as a result with other people is beautiful icing on the cake. Yeah. Okay. So part of it is innate and, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I wanted to say one other thing that happened in my life, I, I don't know how old I was, but I found this book by Julius Lester. I can't remember the exact title. I think it's God, a novel or something like that. It's a novel about God. Okay. And the book starts out with this young woman rabbi. She brings in a Torah to the congregation. Well, she brings it into herself and then gathers a congregation around it. And she starts having visions and she's visited by Hitler. And I won't tell you the story, but it made me understand the Holocaust in an entirely different way. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think that's the other part of what forgiveness does is it kind of opens your mind to a different perspective. Two different perspectives to, and especially for me, the meta practice, the loving kindness practice is about, I may not be able to forgive you in this moment. I may still be angry with you in this moment, but I'm going to offer you loving kindness. Yeah. It kind of begins to open something or begins to shift our perspective about it. And I think that forgiveness, if you're open to forgiveness, that does the same thing. Well, you already kind of answered this next question, but I feel like it's really big. It's a big question. And that is, is there anything that is unforgivable? What would it take to forgive the un- unforgivable? And why why we might want to forgive the unforgivable if there was such a thing? I think I'm remembering the story correctly that during one of the performances, there was a rabbi or someone sitting in the front row and they actually walked out. Is that true that you told me that story about one of your performances? It was in a synagogue. And it was the front row of the congregation five minutes before I finished the piece, uh, walked out and quit the congregation and never returned because I asked the question, can we forgive the Nazis? Mind you, my mom was sitting at the back of the synagogue and she flew up to me and told me how proud she was of me. Wow. I mean, it's interesting that these were American Jews. They were not, you could tell from their, you know, age group. And mm-hmm. it's just part of this. The Holocaust has sometimes become replaced God. Okay. And what Judaism is. And my mother totally loved the piece and was so moved by the piece. And I don't even say yes in the piece. I don't even say, yes, I can forgive the Nazis. I just ask the question. Yeah. And it's powerful that question is. Mm-hmm. But I want to answer your original question 
first of all, I can't answer that question for anyone but myself. Mm-hmm. That, you know, for each of us, it's completely different. And one of the things that I've come to is that for some people, saying I will never forgive is a source of power. And I can't deny that. Like, if that's what you need to get, gather your strength and your power, then not forgiving is the right choice. So I'm not anyone to really advise people. I can just tell you that for me, it has meant a lighter spirit, freedom. And sometimes it's a daily inquiry that I slip backwards into, that I have to revisit, and then I get keep moving forward. It's not a one and done kind of thing mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I see things that are going on in the United States today. And I think my father used to say, you think it, it couldn't happen here in the United States. I'm telling you with the right conditions, the same thing could happen here. And I'm watching and going, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. he's right. Mm-hmm. And so then I have to like do a whole new inquiry. Now it's not the Holocaust and the Nazis. It's just hatred. Mm-hmm. It's a constant, okay, how do I not project all of these negative feelings onto these people without, you know, I don't know their stories. I don't know what their experiences have been. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's painful mm-hmm. to sit in the face of hatred and forgive. Yeah, that's probably the hardest. That's the hardest. That's what I think some people, that's why I think some people feel like it is, there are some unforgivable things because it's so hard. Yeah. It just feels like it's not possible. And you answer. Everything is. Yeah. I mean, haven't you seen those stories about somebody's child was killed by, murdered by someone, and then they become they have a dialogue and it's like a whole different relationship. The mother forgives the murderer. If yeah. that is forgivable, everything yeah. is forgivable. Yeah. I mean, the thing that really broke me open was the power of the heart and Maya Angelou's interview and this movie about racism and about the manhunting that happened. And the woman is brought kind of to the jail, I think, at the end of the movie. And the man that's showing her the prisoner that killed some of her family is expecting her to be in rage and to be just like wanting to, I don't know what he's expecting, but he's not expecting her to forgive. She's so composed in this scene and she looks right at him and she says, I forgive you. And it is so powerful. And it feels like you can feel it in your entire body. Like, how is this possible? Like, wow. I think that's why we have people who are walking out and people who are not happy about what we're doing and who don't understand us because we're all mirrors. And when we see one person's ability to forgive at this level, it does kind of become a really uncomfortable reflection. And I love that you presence this real belief that is, this is your personal choice. And whatever is unforgivable is for each of us to decide. This is not a one size fits all. I love that. But I do think that when you are sharing art or sharing a message or sharing a practice, as I do in in circles, and I talk about this and the power of forgiveness, and even I'm really um, bold in the ways in which I've done big forgiving in my life. I think we have to expect 
that it is so personal that it might be a little bit confronting to people who may not have the same choice or the same capacity to forgive and there's no judgment. But I think it is such a personal thing that we have to be really tender with that. Yeah, that we forgive to the level of what feels accessible to us or what feels open to us. And I also love what you just said about for some people, not forgiving is the power, is the place of power, is the action, is the aligned action to take. And yeah, um, yeah I really honor that. But for you and me, we've found a lot of freedom, a lot of lightness in this practice of forgiving. And I like we like to challenge ourselves to see, is there anything that's unforgivable? And why is that? And what would it take for me to forgive? Because I want to forgive. I want to be a person that forgives. For me, it's a so spiritual because God forgives. If you ask for forgiveness, God forgives instantly. And so that's my checkpoint. You know, who am I not to forgive? Certainly if somebody asks me for forgiveness, but I'm a little bit more, <laughs> I'm more open with it. I don't need anyone to ask me. I give it freely. So yeah, this is really beautiful. And I know this about you. And this is one of the things that I love that we share this really deep, deep, deep practice of forgiveness and the benefits that we've found in it for us. Let's shift roles or like shift a little bit here in our conversation and talk about the role that forgiveness has played in your work as an artist. And not we've kind of shared a little bit about that with regard to the Holocaust piece, but I would love to talk more about it in a broad sense. I'm assuming that you got the grant <laughs> that that was Yes, I got the grant. <laughs> okay. So the grant that was gifted to you from above, you got the grant. And then that sort of shifted your focus into like really putting the forgiveness into the role of forgiveness kind of came into the art then, even though it was sort of an undercurrent in your personal and spiritual life before that. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. It was like, hello, <laughs> this is what we've been waiting for. This is the moment. Yeah. So that first performance, that first video was called the undoing forgiveness okay. and the visual images were the whole visual was used. There's a close up of my hands knitting waxed hemp twine. So that's basically candle wicking. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when you knit a waxed material, it sticks to itself. It sticks to the needles. It sticks to your hands. So you see me, just my hands and the needles and the knitting, struggling. My fingers are turning bright red. Wow. Struggling to get the needle through the loop, to get it off to the other needle. But in between, you're hearing people's personal stories in of them trying, in most cases, to forgive. And it starts, you know, kind of very personal and it gets political. Like this one person comes, I think she and her parents were immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so she's trying to forgive America for breaking its promise mm -hmm. to her family. It ends with this kind of hilarious piece uh, comparing God and Batman and does it really matter if it's God or Batman? Who's going to save us in the end? So there's a lot of layers to that piece. And in between each story, I'm doing the meta practice. Right. And then at the very end, I pull everything off the needles and I start unraveling everything that I, and it was tiny because it took most 20 minutes to get like just a tiny little bit because it wow. was so sticky. 
And so then I unravel the whole thing. And the last contribution was a piece of music, really. A walk through a garden and the sounds of that garden. And so you're seeing me unravel as you hear these, these sounds of a, a garden. And so that was the first piece. It was 30 minutes, totally happened organically, like it birthed itself. Mm-hmm. So powerful. And I immediately had ideas to do the, the second one is self-forgiveness. And I'm working on that video right now. I'm not sure if I'm going to still do the third one, but the third one is going to be called Never Will I Ever. And I'm asking, those would be stories of, in which people would never forgive okay. because of the power and strength that they gain from not forgiving. Okay. And then in between, I had that show at Alfred, which was, we showed the video, the first video. I did this large knitted spiral that hung from the ceiling to the ground, two chairs back to back instructions on either chair. One was for the listener, one was for the speaker. And they had very clear instructions and the listener did not speak, did not comment. If they felt overwhelmed, they were allowed to leave or whatever they needed to take care of themselves. And the other person was free to share anything they wanted within a short period of time. So there was that big piece in one part of the room. And then I was doing a five-day performance installation. So I was there five days, five hours a day, no breaks, knitting myself into a cocoon. Mm -hmm. And then on the last day, I pull it off the needles and start unraveling. And in between, you hear my parents' voices telling their stories of their experiences during the war. You hear me telling stories about throughout my life. You hear music that is inspired by, you know, the moment before it. And then there was two chairs. I was in one chair knitting. And then the second chair, we were, we tied to the second chair with yarn. So we were about six feet apart. Anybody could come and sit and talk to me, knit with me, wow. you know, do whatever they wanted or just sit quietly. It was beyond what I ever imagined. The students at the university, they were told by one faculty member, just go for 10 minutes and then write something. That's all you need to do is show up for 10 minutes and look around. And they stayed for two hours. Wow. And students would come. Some just wanted to show me the thing they were knitting and working on. Others had very powerful stories that they needed to tell someone and had not been able to speak. This one young woman, I'll never forget her. She lives in my heart forever. She came in, I think it was on day two. My mom tells the story of her sister, her husband, and their two children and how they died. I knew this story. I'd heard it many times, but I never registered the story. The story is horrific. They were, the mother and father and two children were put in a well to drown. And it hit me, it was like, can you imagine being a mother and not being able to protect your children? Yeah. Like I just started sobbing uncontrollably. Even though I'd known the story, I'd never felt the story. Wow. And this woman comes in, as I'm weeping after the story's over and she comes in, like makes a beeline for me and says, how are you able to cry like that? So publicly, 
Mm. And I said, I don't think you heard the story right before this. And I tell her the story and I can see as I'm talking to her, she's carrying something. Right. And I said to her, have you had a loss? I don't know how long we spent together, but she poured her heart out to me. And I will never be the same. I will never be the same. And so the fact that these students, and I don't know if you know what it's like to go to college now, students are afraid to speak for being canceled. Oh, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. So to have these students come to me, not their teacher, not their colleague, not their fellow student, and they could just say everything. And they did. And so did the faculty. Wow, Sharon. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine on a small level because the film, which I will link in the show notes for this, if you're listening and want and you're interested in watching the film, this first film that you did, it was so powerful. I mean, I watched it several times and I was thinking actually, as I was watching it, how the live productions must be just so incredible. And then I'm thinking as the, the artist, the interaction, the interactive part of this that's really, really, really where the healing happens. Yeah. So you know when you leave each day what healing has taken place, and that must feel incredible for you. Um, to it's experience. the most magical experience I've ever had. I'm going to be doing the piece again in a gallery in L.A. downtown. It's going to be interesting because we're going to do it over five Saturdays. Okay. So there will be some time in between instead of Yes, it will be better for me because it is sure. brutal on my body. And I'm not a spring chicken, as they say. <laughs> so I'm excited about it because the people I am closest to will be able to come and see it for a day, one day's worth. But that's where it all lives for me is I left Alfred. I didn't need an airplane. I was so high. Mm-hmm. I was just flying. Yeah. I mean, you've touched on several parts of this forgiveness. It's like, I feel like sometimes just the speaking, being witnessed in what happened to you, I would imagine that's probably for many, just you listening and holding space. This idea of having a listener and a speaker, that's it. It's like the holding of space and being seen and just heard in what's happened to you. That's a big part of it. You know, I mean, I think if anything that would be on the borderline of unforgivable has happened to you, just being able to name it and share the story of what happened to you and just be seen and heard and felt in that is a big part of the healing Um, Yeah, to create an opportunity for that feels really big for me. I'd love to learn more about your parents. It sounds to me like part of the legacy that's living in and through you is this work. Yes. But is there anything more in terms of the legacy that's living in and through you? And maybe also the part of the legacy can be that you're doing your part as you see it to kind of make a change with how people feel, how the world feels about certain things so that it doesn't go beyond you. I don't know the story of your parents and maybe that's a V2, a second episode too, because it sounds like there's a lot here and I want to give it the time that it deserves. But can you share just a glimpse of the story with us in this episode? Sure. My mother grew up in a very small town where you went to a well and pumped the water and brought it back home. Mm-hmm. She grew up in a very spiritual family. I'm going to skip, just give you a tiny bit of where they both came from and then where they met. Cause I could talk for days about my parents. 
Okay. My dad grew up in probably the largest Jewish city in Eastern Europe in Vilnius, Lithuania. My mom was in Poland. He had been married, had a three-year-old daughter. My dad had built a hiding place for his family and a number of other families because they were emptying out the ghetto. And my dad and uncle were out looking for the last bit of food. And while they were gone, the hiding place was disclosed. And his wife was told she would probably survive if she gave up the daughter. And she said no. And they were both shot on the spot. Oh, my goodness. So as the, in the last year of the war, my mother had been part of an organization in her childhood. And that's how she survived. They ended up living in the forest. My parents were never in concentration camps. Okay. My mom was living in the forest. She would do this thing where my mom was blue, had blonde hair and hazel blue eyes, somewhere in between those two colors. (laughs) But she was clearly a Jewish person. She had a big nose and anybody in that world knew she was Jewish. But three people had tried to do what she had eventually accomplished, all died. My mom walked at night through the forest, alone, back to places where people were being kept. And she would bring them back from the city to the forest to continue to fight the Germans. One point she was caught. She forgot to read her papers beforehand. And She was traveling with another woman in that case. And she said, look, the guard's asleep. Let's run. My mom said, no, I think that it'll be, we'll end up leading them just back to the, our hiding place. So you go, I'll stay. Wow. And she didn't have her papers. They took her papers. She was smart enough to say, I don't speak German. I only speak Polish. So they had to go get a translator. And she was able to read over the shoulder of the man reading her papers So she knew, she could see from where she was standing, oh, this is my name and this is the names, these are the names of my parents. Wow. And that's how she survived and they let her go. They let her go. But she did it when I was maybe five, six, seven years old, people started making a pilgrimage to our home to thank my mother for saving their lives. Yeah, she saved so many lives. Wow. And my mother was like, Well, the best way to explain her is when she died and we were looking for something to bury her in, she had given everything away. There was nothing. Mm -hmm. We had to ask someone if we could have something back to bury her in. Oh, my goodness. She's like, I don't need this anymore. If you went to the house and she offered you something, if you didn't take it, she gave it to somebody else. (laughs) She was like. That's my aspiration, Sharon, is to die with nothing. We spend so much of our time just collecting things. Yeah. And yeah, and then sitting on them while I sit surrounded by them. Yeah, that's my aspiration is to like to die so lightly. And that her spirit was so generous. Wow. Before the war started, the organization that helped her survive during the war had a communal farm. And so they were raising animals and my mom was breeding roses and she thought this was the way life should be you know like as a communal 
it, that organization ended up starting the kibbutz kibbutz system in Israel. Wow! Because it was the idea that people should not live in separate homes; they should work together and help each other. So, wow. okay. And they met each other. How are your parents? Either my mom or one of the other women who were able to bring people out brought my father and my uncle out. Okay. And that's where they met. And my mom tells the story that he wasn't 100% sure that his wife and daughter were dead. People told him they were dead, but he needed to know for sure. And she said the way he talked about his family, that's when she fell in love with him. Mm. It's so much my mom, because other women would probably be like, why are you still talking about those people? But my mother was like, oh my God, look at how he loves his family. Right. And so that's how they met. But he always said he was a foot soldier and my mother was a general. <laughs> okay. I love this. I've heard so many beautiful stories of the courage. I mean, whenever I hear a story of Holocaust survivors and how they survived, it is always, always, always on wit, something that's cunning, incredible bravery that comes just from the deepest place within and an absolute will to live, to survive, just like an instinctual, something instinctual that happens in a moment like your mother had, where you just have a will to live. Yeah. I also just can't even imagine the absolute horror and grief of the life that they had and how absolutely horrific it was. It's almost unfathomable to me, which makes the forgiveness even bigger. I feel like my mom lived in her own world that I never really had access to her and that the person that these stories are about, I didn't know that person. Okay. I knew her generosity. I saw that on a daily basis. One of my favorite stories about my mom is that because of what she'd done, she was given papers to emigrate to Palestine, which were like worth everything. Mm-hmm of them knew where they were going to go. My mom had a friend. She was one of the three women who died before my mom successfully managed to do what they were all trying to do. Her, the mother of that friend was all alone. She'd lost her husband, her daughter. And so my mother gave her the papers. Wow. Figuring that my parents would make their way. Yeah. The generosity is just saintly. 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 Just so. And still carrying what is completely unforgivable. And I totally understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you frame it as in a generational thing where in their generation, it was about survival and anything beyond that feels like it's not important. Yeah. And I love that frame. That's really beautiful. And maybe some would say maybe it's easier beyond that to forgive because it's not, you're not in survival mode. (sighs) Exactly. Perhaps. Exactly. Yeah, perhaps. Well, I love this and I want to learn more about your parents. And I wish that I could be in LA for the five Saturdays to like witness the stories in person. And I know that there's a book coming. We'll talk about that in a moment. So Yeah. Thank you for taking a moment to share with us the lives that they led and and the struggle that they had and what they overcame and the courage, the incredible courage and the love that your mother saw in your father through his devotion to his family. 
Yeah, this is it. It's about feeling the story, feeling the story through you, feeling the truth of what happened through you. This is definitely a departure from where we just were. I want to find out, have you always been a knitter? (laughs) Where this love of knitting comes from? And I feel like if I didn't ask you this question, because so much of your work is around knitting, then somebody might ask me, well, you didn't ask her about the knitting. Yeah. Why knitting? And how knitting? And why do you love knitting if you love knitting? And in your work, in your practice, in your healing, it does feel like a really perfect metaphor, the way in which you've used it. Well, so let me answer your question about knitting, making it simple. Mm -hmm. My mother tried to teach me knitting, but she couldn't slow it down enough so that I could understand what was going on. She could knit and read a book at the same time. So when she died, I stumbled into a yarn store looking for a piece of string. And she had just died. And these bins of soft, fluffy, colorful yarns were just like, can I just sleep here? Mm-hmm. I left it with a kit to make a poncho and wow. taught myself to knit. <gasps> and it was my grieving process. Okay. I mean, it, Terry was like, will I ever see anything but the top of your head? <laughs> okay. All I did was knit. And then when I was through the grieving process, it hit me that I'd been looking for something from the time I was 18 in terms of my art practice. How do you convey this thing that we're all interconnected. And the thing about knitting is you take a single strand, you make a complex form, but if you cut it anywhere, the whole thing unravels. Wow. Okay. And when I realized that I was, this is the metaphor I've been looking for since I was 18. Perfect. That's how knitting came into my life. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's really perfect. It's the perfect metaphor for this work. That's a grant winner. Justin, like that, that's a grant winner. Can you share a glimpse of your spiritual and healing journey with us? Like, I mean, in a nutshell, you've shared a little bit of like your healing journey with us around this generational trauma and this this story of your parents. That's been really beautiful. The second part of this is really around the response. Do you feel a responsibility as an artist to expand your own journey to include messages with your art? And you shared kind of at the beginning of this interview that they've become one in the same, that they became one in the same kind of as you're walking and as you're moving. And each time you produce something, it feels like it's closer and closer to your own healing and maybe is also adding to your healing and spiritual journey. I love when I encounter an artist that feels some responsibility with their art to do something bigger or to heal the world with it or to send a message with it. And so I'm just wondering if that feels true for you and what that message might be. Well, I think what I just said, you know, the idea of that we're all interconnected and that we're all, we can't harm one without harming all. Mm -hmm. I think that evolution to the forgiveness work is where it really became not theoretical, but very personal. My spiritual life, I've always had a spiritual life. I was raised in a Jewish family, obviously. I had to make peace with the idea that I was not limited to being a Jewish person. Mm -hmm. Not easy in my family, Mm -hmm. but I've always been a seeker. And I think I was in my, oh gosh, late 20s when I met, I went on a meditation retreat with a rabbi and his wife. 
And they were kind of like the kind of rabbi I could understand. He was going to become a Buddhist monk, but then he felt like an obligation to speak to the Jewish community. So he became a rabbi and they were so not, (laughs) they were totally Jewish and so not traditional. Okay. And so that was the beginning of my really connected to meditation practice. And it just became like a magical world that I could find peace in mm-hmm. amidst all the craziness. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say that's the through line is my meditation practice. But I think the part of me that comes out of Judaism, which is the main thing about Judaism is we ask questions. We don't look for answers. We ask questions. And so my process of asking deep and important questions of myself and the world around me is the primary part of my spiritual life. Right. Yeah. So beautiful. The more that I learn about various faiths, the more I'm realizing the similarities rather than the differences. And that's been a beautiful discovery in my curiosity, my constant curiosity with really big questions that I've been asking since I was little too. (laughs) So Yeah, so that resonates. But I want to speak to the art part because I'm navigating the art world and my personal practice. And the art world does not really like words like healing. And it's best if you show and not tell. Okay. Hmm. I think that's right because... I don't want to be preaching and I don't want to pass myself off as a teacher. Mm-hmm. I want to create an experience that people can enter or walk away from their choosing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As somebody who loves art, that's the most, that sometimes that's frustrating because I want the answer when I leave, like, what did she mean by this? Or what message am I supposed to be getting? Or what does that black dot mean? So yeah, I love that I love that art is open-ended. It's about creating the experience and letting the magic happen for each of us. Yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful. One of my favorite artists is James Turrell. Have you ever oh. seen his work? No, I don't think so. He, he was born into a Quaker family and he once asked his grandmother, you know, what are we doing here? And she goes, we're greeting the light. And that's exactly what his work is about. Oh, that's the most you would love his work. (laughs) I'm gonna make a note to do a little investigation. Maybe I'm maybe I've seen it and I just don't know. But that's beautiful. Yeah. Mm, I love that. Something powerful happens when we listen. I love that you use the word privilege with listening in your bio. Can you tell me more about this, please? We've touched on it a little bit about the power of just giving space to listen in your work. Yes. And this need for wanting to be heard and maybe seen in our stories. I really believe that there's a time for everything and that there are moments. I mean, I felt so unheard in my family that there were long periods where I really ached to be heard. Mm. And then as I became a teacher, I realized more than me talking to them, what they needed was for me to listen to them. Mm-hmm. And it's finding, you know, the person who tends to want to talk should be a listener. The person <laughs> who tends to listen should be a talker. Right. 
I want people to understand the power of listening and how it heals both parties. Mm-hmm. My heart has been opened by listening. Yeah, that does make it a privilege, doesn't it? So yeah. beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. I learned recently, you know, not recently, recently, but in reading Alison Armstrong's book, The Queen's Code, that the way in which we listen to each other, and particularly the way in which the feminine listens to the masculine or a woman listens to a man, it's like one of their deepest desires to be listened to. And the way in which we can listen to learn about them um, just brought a deeper sense of appreciation to this idea of listening, which I think we can kind of be a little bit more casual about. There's a real privilege to it and there's a real skill to it and there's a real gift to it. And I also love this challenge of if you're always speaking, can you listen more? (laughs) And if you're always listening, can you speak more? That's really beautiful. It's a practice that we should all kind of lean into. All right. I have just a couple more questions before we go into the questions that I always end with. This last one, the I love this sentence in your bio, but breaking can also be an act of breaking free. And it feels like something you know. And yes. is there a time when you broke and this breaking was an act of breaking free of something? That you can- oh, so many times. I <laughs> yeah. can't even begin to find just one. I think that one of the things I keep talking about my parents, but one of the things I learned from them, it was evident how they were broken. And at the same time, they never lost their humanity. For me, being able to reveal the brokenness and claim it with dignity and strength, Mm -hmm. that's holiness. That is everything. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I've had many things broken, physically abused. There's those things. But then there's the conversations that we I never had with my parents that I'll never have with my parents because they're gone. Mm-hmm. And then there's just being grown up in a neighborhood that I did not belong in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like all those millions of little and large brokennesses. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a point where you realize those dropped stitches, those mistakes in the knitting are the beautiful things. It's that there's a Japanese uh, oh, like Kasugi, maybe. Yeah. Or wabi sabi wabi wabi sabi. Wabi sabi. Couple yes. of yeah. The things that, that the brokenness is the beauty. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And Rumi gives us a beautiful quote around, you know, the cracks are where the light comes in. So it's like yes. this forgiveness, this acceptance of breaking yourself even wider open maybe and finding the freedom there. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that that's happening in your work for the listeners and for the people that are sharing. So you already answered this next question, but you're working on the next LA show and um, you're working on another video and, yep. and, and may, possibly a third, although the third one doesn't sound as solid as maybe as maybe the, the second one. Okay, these are the projects that you're currently working on. And the book. And the book. Will you tell us a little bit about the book? I'm so excited about the book. I'm hoping we will find a publisher. I thought we had the perfect publisher and that we would be the perfect match, but they didn't feel the same way. So now we're back at the drawing board and looking for the next possible publisher. And the the idea is that I want to bring forgiveness into the conversation, into a larger 
community of having that conversation. My vision for the book is it's as if you went to a party and you didn't know who you were talking to, but you sat down and you had this deep conversation. And then at the end, you find out who they are. Mm -hmm. So I think we have about half the essays that we're looking for. We're, we're going to reach out further once we get the, the uh, contract for the book. But we have Sharon Salzberg, who's a major Buddhist teacher. We have an 11-year-old boy. We have you. We have a, a midwife. We have a poet, songwriter. Like there's all these different Walks people who come from, yeah, who live in different ways. And then there was this woman who wrote, who's a writer. At first she gave me her essay and I thought, no, this doesn't have anything to do with <laughs> this project. And then she was like, well, you said respond to the video. And she goes, and this is my response. And then it hit me like, it's the most beautiful response because it doesn't talk about the video at all. It's a direct response to her work. Wow. So it's going to be all, and then they're going to be arranged where the table of contents will be the 11 year old boy, the, you know, you won't know names until you get to the story. And at the end, you'll know the name of the person. Okay. Beautiful. I can't wait. And I feel really honored to be in this book. Let's find a publisher. Let's find. A yes. I like to ask these same three questions at the end of every episode. The first one is, which do you relate to the most, whole, healed, or holy, and why? I have to say whole, because I don't feel necessarily physically healed. But as you know, I've been having some health issues. Mm -hmm. And so while I may not be healed, I am whole. Mm -hmm. Even in long periods of non-doing, Mm -hmm. Maybe even more so. Yeah, that's beautiful. Two, a book that you love or that you have gifted the most? Michael Singer, The Untethered Soul. Oh, yes, I love that one. Yeah. And the subtitle is The Journey Beyond Yourself is like for me everything. But I love <laughs> this book because I've read maybe three books in my lifetime, and I've read a lot of books where you're like, you're going through a portal. And it takes you on a journey. And that book is one of them. Really life-changing. Yeah, life-changing. Really, really, really beautiful book. A quote or mantra that you love or that guides you? I'm trying to think. There's two things. So for the longest time, it was a portion of a Rumi poem that says, beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. That's kind of been my lifelong thing. But right now it's hold things lightly because in this period where I've been dealing with this health crisis, there are people who I didn't expect to just kind of vanish. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a forgiveness practice too. It's right. like people are living their lives and we can't hold on so tightly that we get angry if they live the life they want to live. Mm, yeah. So, and always I'm trying to hold on lightly. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful reminder. Impermanence. Exactly. Yeah, really. Okay, the ways in which people can find you. I'm going to put this in the show notes. Instagram lightly, your website. Is that really where we should guide everyone to kind of keep their eye on you? Is there any yeah. other place? 
if they want to be on a mailing list, they should go to the website and sign up for the newsletter. It'll just keep them posted on what's happening. They can also see all the work that I've done over the years and they can find me on Instagram. I'm pretty easily findable there. Okay. And I'm happy to hear that you're still looking for writers for this book. So if anybody listening is is getting a tingle about this book and wants to ask Sharon more about the book, if you're a writer or a poet or um, just a big liver (laughs) of life and you feel a tingle about that, you can probably reach out to her directly. I also want to say that I really, I live in the United States and I have a very narrow access to the world beyond. So I'm really looking for people who come from very different places in the world with very different life experiences. Okay. I'm going to do my best to send my net out, a wide, wide net out, because I have some sisters that are in various places in the world that are so far from the U.S. (laughs) that I'll do my part to see if I can get anybody interested in helping you with this project. Thank you. Mm, I love you so much. I love the way that your life touches so many for the better and how you inspire us to forgive, to break and break free, to heal, to listen, and to love. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you are and all that you share and for being here with me today for this Heart to Heart and for the art that you're creating and the conversations that you're creating and the healing that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much, Sharon. I love you to pieces. Oh, you know how I feel about you, girl. (laughs) You are my teacher, you are my sister, and I love you with all my heart. Mm, Thank you. I feel the same way. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It means a lot to me that we have shared this moment of deep conversation. If you feel inspired or touched by something in this episode, please leave a comment and or a review. For more in all the ways, please find me at wholehealedholy on Instagram and at www.patricia-russo.com on the web. Stay close, please, and know that you are whole, you are healed, and you are holy. I love you. Until next time.